wherever in the world you are. Welcome to the Health Zone Show with Mihal Omahuna, where with each episode I explore interesting health and well-being topics with a thought-provoking guest. These topics can range from nutrition, relationships, spirituality, finance, creativity, mental health and much, much more, so that you can live a healthier, happier and more authentic life. Guests on the show vary from health experts, spiritual teachers, finance wizards, sports legends, to ordinary people with extraordinary lives. Find us on facebook.com forward slash The Health Zone Show, or you can also join our Facebook group, The Health Zoners. We're also on Twitter, Instagram, pin interest under The Health Zone. Check out our new updated website, www.thehealthzoneshow.com, and at the moment, you can receive a free copy of my latest ebook, Seven Ways to Boost Your Overall Well Being When You Join the Health Zone. Today, I'm talking with developer of the Somatic Experiencing Method and author of the best selling book, Waking the Tiger Healing Trauma, as well as many other books, Dr. Peter Levine. Hello, Peter. How are you doing today? I'm doing okay. I have a nice cup of warm tea in my hands, and uh, I'm I'm comfortable. I mean, I'm really grateful. Um, you know, uh, all of our lives have been disrupted by this, but um, and mine, of course, too. But not to the degree as others, you know, who really are in tremendous amount of fear for their their very survival and for their livelihood. So, when all is said and done, I'm doing really just fine. In what way could the somatic experiencing promote resilience during these challenging times in regards to the COVID-19 situation? Yes, I'll give you a very short answer, which I really find is quite effective. And it's really to understand what fear is. And fear is something that we experience in our bodies. Our guts twist our shoulders go up in tension. Our breathing becomes very rapid or very, uh, or very slight. And these are all things that we then get to interpret as fear. So one of the keys that I found in working with fear is to become aware of the actual body sensations that are going on in the, in, as you experience the fear. So maybe the jaw is really tight and, um, and the back is arc. Well, if you notice those and then also notice any thoughts or images that go with those sensations, then what you can do is uncouple the fear from the sensations and the thoughts. And it's tricky. It's, it's a very simple, very simply in, in principle, but it really does take practice. But it is, I found that it's a skill that anybody can use. Anybody can benefit from. How much of your approach stems from your own personal traumatic experiences? Well, yes. A friend of mine once said research is me search. And, um, you know, um, uh, as a young child, 
I experience prolonged life threat and sometimes even devastating trauma. But you know, this is um, certainly not an unexpected antecedent for a life devoted to the study of stress and, tra of stress and trauma. And a friend of mine said, again, research is me-search. So to search my own issues, um, it, you know, that really uh, took me to an exploration of this whole method and of teaching the method um, worldwide. How has this work impacted you in your own life? Well, you know what? Hold on a minute. Just uh, read you a, a couple of paragraphs from one of my books, a book called In an Unspoken Voice, How the Body Releases Trauma and Restores Goodness. So I'm just going to grab it right now. I'll be back in less than a minute. And this will probably go back to the question you asked about fear. So, you know, when I re uh, was writing the book, uh, at different times, I felt stuck in my writing, some piece that didn't come together. And there's a book, a Chinese book called the I Ching, the Book of Changes. And it was written oh, almost 5,000 years ago, but it has remarkable wisdom today as remarkable as it had before. And um, the, in writing the first chapter, the, uh, what you do is you throw three coins a few times and then depending on what side they uh, fall, it takes you to a page in the, in the, in the book, in the I Ching. And the, um, the hexagram that I uh, discovered is hexagram 51. And it goes like this. When a man has learned within his heart what fear and trembling mean, he is safeguarded against any terror produced by outside influences. I'll read that one more time. When a man has learned within his heart what fear and trembling mean, he is safeguarded against any terror produced by outside influences. So I'll start reading. No matter how self-assured we are, in a fraction of a second, our lives can be utterly devastated. As in the biblical story of Jonah, the unknowable forces of trauma and loss can swallow us whole, thrusting us deep into their cold, dark belly. Entrapped, yet lost, we become hopelessly frozen by terror and helplessness. Early in the year 2005, I walked out of my house onto a balmy Southern California morning. The gentle warmth and soft sea breeze gave a lift to my step. Certainly, this was the kind of winter morning that makes everyone in the rest of the country want to abandon their snow shovels and move to the Southland's warm, sunny beaches. It was the beginning of a perfect kind of day, a day when you feel certain that nothing can go wrong, when nothing bad can possibly happen. But it did. A moment of truth. I walked along absorbed in happy anticipation of being with my dear friend Butch for the celebration of his 60th birthday. I stepped out into a crosswalk. The next moment, paralyzed and numb, I'm lying on the road, unable to move or breathe. I can't figure out what has just happened to me. How did I get here? Out of a swirling fog of confusion and disbelief, a crowd of people rushes towards me. They stop, aghast. 
Abruptly, they hover over me in a tightening circle, their staring eyes fixed on my limp and twisted body. From my helpless perspective, they appear like a flock of carnivorous ravens swooping down on an injured prey. Me. Slowly, I orient myself and identify the real attacker. As in an old-fashioned flashbulb photo, I see a beige car looming over me with its teeth-like grill and shattered windshield. The door suddenly jerks open. A wide-eyed teenager bursts out. She stares at me in dazed horror. In a strange way, I both know and don't know what has happened. By the way, that's really typical with people who have been traumatized. In one way, they know what happened, but on the other hand, they, they don't know what happened. They really maybe often even deny anything happened. As the fragments begin to converge, they convey a horrible reality. I must have been hit by this car as I entered the crosswalk. I'm lying on the ground and uh, in this state of shock, of numbness, of shock. Uh, this man comes over and he announces that he's a paramedic. So I orient towards him in his direction. And all of a sudden he shouts at me, don't move, your neck could be broken. And of course, to me, it was your neck is broken. And I could feel myself absolutely freezing. And it's like I left my body. It's like I dislocated from my body and I was above my body looking down, seeing myself, my twisted body laying on the, on the pavement, on the road. And then he's taking my pulse. I can see him do that. And then, thankfully, a woman, a young woman comes over and she kneels down with me, at me, with me at my side. And she says, hi, I'm a doctor, actually a pediatrician. I was thinking that's exactly the kind of doctor I need. She said, is there anything I can do for you? And I said, please just stay here with me. And she reached her hand and held my hand. And in that moment, it's like I came back into my body. And so I don't know exactly how long I was there, but soon the ambulance came and they put me in the ambulance and we started to head to the trauma hospital. Now, um, then while in the ambulance, the paramedic woman took my pulse and my blood pressure and she did it again. And I said, what is my blood pressure? What is my heartbeat? What is my blood pressure? And she said, well, I can't tell you that. I can only tell a doctor. I said, well, actually I am a doctor, which is a part truth. And <laughs> partly true, I guess, it's just not that kind of doctor. So she said, well, something's wrong uh, because they, it shows that your, your, your heart rate is, is 72 because it was about 160, even 180 when the paramedic took my pulse and your blood pressure is 120 over 70. And she said, nobody has a normal blood pressure and heart rate after an accident like this. So I tried to explain to her what I did. And she said, oh, that's really interesting. That's really amazing. And I never miss an opportunity to proselytize. So I told her that we do do some programs for first responders, for paramedics. And she said, well, um, 
please give me the information. And I did. Um, thankfully, when I got to the hospital, I didn't have any severe injuries, uh, internal injuries, which was, of course, that, that was their fear. And then um, I asked a, a very good friend of mine to come down, and she came down and stayed with me. And then we checked out from the hospital and went back. And I wasn't traumatized from that. I could have very easily been severely traumatized. But allowing myself to hold that woman's hand and to let my body shake and tremble, to let my hands become icy cold and then warm, and then spontaneous breaths, breaths uh, just occurring on their own. And this went on for at least another hour. And then when we got to the house, I continued, the shaking was much more gentle and the breathing much more free. And I started to come back. So again, using those very simple tools, but with the help of somebody there with me. And, and even though I've developed this work over really probably like 45 years, uh, and I really, of course, understand what happens at a very deep level. I needed that other person to be there. We all do that. And it's one of the big problems that's happening here with the, you know, with the coronavirus is there just even the words that are used there. Words are important when they say uh, social distancing. They shouldn't be saying that. It should be physical distancing and social connection. That's so, so, so important. And we can do it with the technologies. I mean, of course, it's not the same thing. And we can call people that we haven't talked to for some time or people that we're very close to and check in how they're doing and they're checking in to see how we're doing. So we are, our nervous systems are designed to co-participate with the nervous systems of another. Our bodies resonate, our feelings resonate with those of another. So again, to be able to not, uh, to not be afraid of the fear and to be able to open into the fear, that really is the trick. But, and also to do that when somebody's there with you, even if it's on a Zoom call or a Skype call or a phone call, you know, just to know that there's someone with you. You know, there's a, a Motown song, it says, goes like this. It takes one to stand in the dark alone. It takes two to let the light shine through. So really the connection with other is extremely important and knowing the nature of fear and how it occurs in our bodies. You know, trauma, when I first worked, began to develop the work in trauma, it was really in the 60s and, and then the end 60s. That, that time there was no definition of trauma as PTSD. And so I didn't know that trauma, because it wouldn't be another 12 years, 14 years until the definition occurred in the diagnostic manuals. And so I didn't know that trauma was a brain disorder, a brain disease that was basically incurable and that could only be managed by drugs and by trying to change one's thoughts. So I was really able to explore the nature of how trauma affects us in our bodies and then how we can help to resolve and transform that um, those, that trauma. And, you know, there's a, a beautiful image that I like to use 
and it's the picture of a, of a teacup from uh, ancient Japan. And they had a tradition that if a cup was broken, they would mend the crack with gold. And the idea here is that when we are broken and we mend, we are more beautiful than ever. And I've discovered that in working again with thousands of people and then with my students worldwide working with 50,000 people that these skills are absolutely learnable. They can be practiced. Uh, you know, one of the books I wrote is I call Trauma Proofing Your Kids, A Parent's Guide for Instilling Confidence, Joy, and Resilience. A guide so that parents can help children when these bad things happen, when they fall off the bicycle or, God forbid, walk through a glass window and wind up in the emergency room or swallow some marbles and wind up in the emergency room. There are things that we can do to help calm our children so that they don't develop trauma. And indeed, as in the title, A Parent's Guide for Instilling Confidence, Joy, and Resilience. It really is when children learn to do this and when adults, we learn to do this as well, we become more resilient. We are not so overwhelmed by trauma as we might be without this capacity. And again, it's a learned capacity. It's something that with practice, we can become quite proficient at. But it's like learning a new language. At first, you know, it's very difficult. You know, when I was teaching in Brazil uh, uh, for a number of years, um, I, you know, tried to learn some Portuguese. I was, let's just say, largely unsuccessful, but I stayed at it. And eventually I got to practice this with other people, with taxi drivers or people I would meet in the elevator and so forth. And I never became proficient in Portuguese, but I could get around. I could get around sufficiently. So this is like learning a new language, like learning what goes, in our, goes on in our bodies. And that was really the, the basis of the first book, which you mentioned, Awaking the Tiger, healing trauma, to really develop those skills that we can learn to focus on our body's internal experience. And that instead of being overwhelmed by the sensations, we can gently open into the sensations. And, and that is really the trick in healing trauma. It's not a trick, it's a, it's a skill. And Peter, why do people disassociate, say, from the trauma or the pain in the body? Trauma is something that happens in the body. I mean, it happens in the brain as well, of course, the brain and the mind, but primarily it happens in the body. And as I said before, you know, when we see something, or when we see something horrible, our guts go, Ugh, they twist and they feel nauseous. Maybe we feel even faint or dizzy. And what happens, well, let me get, let me, I'm gonna uh, give a little, talk on physiology. I hope I don't, people don't tune out. But there's a nerve that goes from the back of the brain, the back of the brainstem, down through the whole body, goes below the diaphragm, and it, it affects all of our organs, all of our visceral organs, including actually also our heart, our lungs. And this nerve is called the vagus nerve. And vagus 
is from vagabond, which means the wanderer, and that's exactly what that nerve does. It just wanders around. And it's the largest nerve in the body by far. And what many people didn't know is that that nerve is 80% afferent. So it's actually taking information from the guts and taking that information up to the brain stem in that same area, which triggered us to originally go, ugh, when we saw somebody falling off or being hit by a car and a bicycle or something like that. So what happens is what, because that is getting information, 80% of it is actually getting information from the viscera, sending it back to the brain. So the brain sees this horrible thing. It goes, ugh, that ugh goes up the vagus nerve. It first goes down the vagus nerve into the gut, the gut twist. That twisting is relayed back up the vagus nerve into the brain, then where it becomes amplified. So the ugh goes to ugh and goes to, oh God, it's like we collapse into helplessness. And that's where people who have trauma are stuck. They've collapsed into helplessness. There are a number of things that I do. Let me give you one very simple exercise that can be helpful to break that cycle, which I call a positive feedback loop with negative consequences, to get a new signal back into the brain that says, hey, the trauma is over. Because that's what happens when people are traumatized. It seems like the trauma is replaying itself every day, probably moment to moment, as though it were still happening. And again, that's what that feedback loop does with, the, with that vagus nerve. So I have an exercise that's easy to practice and people can practice it and um, uh, you know, practice it right now if they want. Uh, or practice it later. Again, I suggest to do it with a friend, someone that you're at least quarantined with. So the idea here is to take a full, easy breath. And on the exhalation, let the breath come out as you make the sound woo coming from the belly. So letting the sound and the breath go all the way out. And then just taking the next breath and gently gently letting the breath again come filling belly and chest and then again gently making the voo sound from the belly. So let me demonstrate here uh, and I'll do it just a couple of times and then if you want, if you want, you can do it with me. So. I'm vibrating it down in my belly. And I let the breath and the sound all the way out. Let the new breath come in, filling belly and chest. <clears throat> and just rest. And often people will feel tingling in their fingers and their hands. They might feel their breath being more full, more spontaneous or some sensations can come up that are a little bit frightening. And again, the idea is just to notice the sensations, physical sensations in the body, and just letting them take their natural course of action. So shall we, anybody who wants to join, let's just do it together, okay? 
easy, full breath. Let the breath come in, filling belly and chest. And one more time. And just feeling sensations, feelings, images that come into your mind, eye, thoughts, just anything that's in your experience. And even if they're negative thoughts, like something bad is going to happen, I know I'm, this isn't going to last, just to notice that it's a thought. So just say, oh, I have the thought that this isn't going to last. And it's just the thought. So just be aware, be aware of the thought. Be aware of the sensations and just notice how they shift with time. Just notice what happens next. Thank you, Peter. And how important is the expression of sound and movement as a way to release? I talked a little bit about the tension, for example, that we might be holding in our shoulders. So another very simple exercise is to just feel the tension and to just allow the tension to actually increase very, very slowly. So if my shoulders are tight, you can't see it because we're not on a video. If my shoulders are tight, I actually just allow them to become tight, tighter and tighter and my shoulders slowly lift up towards my ears. And I just do that a little bit and then just let the shoulders come down. Just notice sensations and feelings. And again, feeling the tension in the shoulder, let the tension slowly move the shoulders up just a little bit more, a little bit more, and then let them slowly, slowly come down. And then just notice any sensations and feelings that are going on in your body, in your mind, and just notice them, just observe them just be the observer of the observing of them. How does trauma affect whole communities, nations, and even the global community? Ah, yes. Thank you for asking the question. Um, fear is at least as contagious as the coronavirus. Fear. And fear is the killer of the mind. It really is. And fear, what well, we are meant when we feel fear, people who are around us or even people that we're talking to, even on the phone, they will pick up on that fear. We are tuned to that. So for example, if you have a herd of gazelle, a herd of impala, and they're grazing in an upland meadow, and one of the gazelles here smells a novel scent that may be from a predator that's stalking them like a cheetah. And so they immediately freeze in motion. And then all of the other uh, gazelles that are with them, they also freeze and they make readiness to escape. So the fear is something that lets us, gives us the information that we may need to escape, that there is danger. And it's meant to, to, it's meant to spread because 
uh, again, because we are mammals, we're social mammals, and we signal each other through our emotional states. We're either positive or negative. So again, it's really important to understand that we need to help ourselves, help our friends, help our family, and as much as I can, as much as we can to help our communities. Because if we can break that contagion, this fear, this anxiety around the virus, it will pass. It has always done that with every virus that's ever happened before. But we have to really work mindfully with our fear, work with the fear of how it affects our bodies so that we're not spreading it. And doing the things that are mostly simple, again, not to uh, socially isolate, but to physically be at a distance. And unfortunately, what I've noticed is um, com uh, community leaders tend to either be too, or uh, people in political power tend to be either too complacent or too hysterical. And so they really need to find that middle ground where you're doing the things that do make a difference, but that you're not cutting yourself off completely from others. And it takes somebody who's trustworthy. It is a very sad situation here because here in the States, in the US, we don't have a government that people can trust. We don't have a government that gives clear messages. You know, they're giving the opposite message, you know, every, every other day or even the same day or even in, you know, in, the, in a few minutes after. And that's very disorienting for people because uncertainty really breeds a lot of fear. So it's so important that we have leaders that really can help the people calm, to help the people know what's happening and to keep them informed. You know, I think of um, uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt. He was the president during um, the Second World War. He said to a, an, an anxious nation, to a frightened nation, he said, on the radio, there weren't televisions at that time, he said, the only thing to fear is fear itself. He said that calmly, and it really made a big difference in the entire nation. And Peter, how does emotional pain get stored in the cells, in the body cells? Ah, you know, well, this is another important question they're asking, Michael is that our emotions, are, again, are those things that are locked in our bodies. And people that have a lot of fear or anxiety before this will be greatly triggered. And people with a lot of trauma in particular, it will be almost like the trauma is happening again. So these people need more guidance uh, from therapists, hopefully, uh, from, I, and I know there are numbers of, of somatic experiencing therapists in, you know, in Ireland now. Um, and, but just even with each other, just saying, it, okay, I know that you're scared. And I know also that this will pass. So if you could just notice what sensations you're having, then let's just see if those sensations can move, can we can open into those sensations. 
Because again, when we fight against the sensations of fear, that actually causes more fear. And then the more fear causes again to brace against that fear to try to tamp it down. And the more we try to tamp it down, the more it pushes up. So we have to open to the fear in a more gentle way, hopefully with the help and guidance of the others. And Peter, is there anything we can learn from shamanic traditions in regard to healing trauma? Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. You know, as I developed somatic experiencing, uh, I started to n notice some similarities between what happened here, which would sometimes seem almost mystical in some way, that what would happen here, I, I saw that was similar to things that um, happen in different kind of shamanic types of healing. And um, so I, you know, I study cross-cultural aspects of shamanism to some degree and had the opportunity to visit with different shamans in different, through different parts of the world and to talk with them and, and to relate with them. And, I, and so in a way in developing this method, uh, you know, because I, I knew that part of my mission was to put this in the mainstream. And, um, and so I, you know, I didn't want it to seem like it was fringing. So I didn't really talk about demonic connections. But now when my elder age is here, uh, you know, I, I want to give a, de a debt to what is probably a lineage uh, in my generations of some kind of shamanic healing. And so I think that there's also a science of shamanic healing. And some of the anthropologists have studied it really very, very well. I mean, also like anything, you have people who are kind of doing phony things and they're kind of, you know, they're make-believe shamans. Um, so, um, but to, to study, when in somatic experiencing, it's a three-year training. And after that training, you're just at the very beginning. You're at, in the kindergarten at the first grade. And really, it takes years mm -hmm. to be able to deeply work with trauma. It really does. And in the shamanic tradition, it takes decades to develop one's shamanic skills. And that often starts in early childhood. So it's not something you can learn overnight. Overnight, you know, it's something that you can learn uh, in a single workshop. It, uh, it's something that really is a, uh, a, a great skill. Uh, it's a, it's a, a skill that you know, one develops by transmission through somebody who really has also done their own work. And that's why nobody teaches somatic experiencing unless they've done a lot of their own work. That's one of the requirements. So again, it's, in some ways it's different than shaman, but there's definitely an overlap with different shamanic practices. At least that's my experience. How important is it to have compassion and presence when you're working with somebody who has trauma? It's essential. It's absolutely essential to have presence when you're working with somebody who's traumatized or who is in fear. We have to be present in ourselves so that we're not picking up their fear. And when the fear is there, we know what to do, how to deal with that. So, um, 
you know, that's, that's absolutely essential to be present in ourselves. And then we can be present for another. We cannot be present in our, in, for another if we're not present in ourselves. When I started uh, in the early 70s working with people who were turning from Vietnam, Vietnam veterans, because um, I was fortunate and did not have to go because I was in a scientific medical program deemed to be, you know, essential for, um, for, the, for health. But people I know did go and, and many of them returned quite, quite injured, not only physically, but deeply emotionally. And so I set up a thing where people could come in. I didn't charge anything on the Thursdays. And uh, if they just wanted to come in to hang out with me. And so the first Thursday, this one person came in and be almost before he was sitting down, he started to talk about the horrible, horrible things that he was made to do that he did. I mean, really, really, it just took my, it, I was, I felt nauseous. I felt dizzy. I felt almost like I could pass out, but I knew what to do with that fear. I knew what to, how to let it move through in my body, how it cut into my legs and then into the ground. And I said to him, let's call him Michael. I said, Michael, when you told me about this, uh, you know, and I felt, I felt nauseous. I felt almost like I was going to pass out. And it wasn't because I was judging you. I know enough to, about war to know that water, war is hell. It's hell and it's absolutely, it's horrible. But I knew what to do with those sensations so they didn't get stuck in my body. And I think those skills could be helpful for you. And so again, sort of some of the things that we were just doing today here in the call, um, I was able to, I, I did with him. <laughs> and the next Thursday I was walking to my office and I noticed a line of people down the one street and around the other street. And they were all the, the, the friends of this man. And so uh, I was renting a, a, a room in this house uh, for my office. And so I asked the, the uh, owners of the house if I could bring in all of these people and we could be together in their living room. And we all came together. There was about 25 of them. We practiced these kinds of skills together. And then, because they would, the only thing they would talk about with each other previously was all of the horrible things that happened that they did. So they rehashed the traumas over and over. Then this changed and they were helping each other move through the difficult sensation rather than re-traumatizing themselves. And again, that can happen if we're in a group and again, we're just going through these horrible things without them shifting. Then again, others will pick up here because that kind of fear is transmissible. So again, it's really learning the, to be able to stand back to be able to observe the sensations, to be called mindful of them. I call that body full of our sensations. And then in doing that, to move through them so that we're able to be present and to be present for ourselves, for our others, and even for our communities. Would you have any final last words of wisdom for any of our listeners who maybe are experiencing trauma in their own lives and how they could best support themselves on this journey? Well, again, I, I, th I think people can best support each other by making social closeness, social contact. You know, in Italy, when the, 
quarantine uh, because they had a really a strong outbreak, as you probably know. And so people were really confined to only to being in their houses. And then there's this one video, I'm sure you can find it on YouTube, is the, the uh, uh, one person came to his uh, balcony with his guitar and started to play his guitar and to sing. And another person had an accordion and she was uh, standing on her balcony with her window open and her playing the accordion. And then an old or couple came out onto their balcony with pots and pans and started banging the pots and pans. They were connecting with each other and only connect. That's what I would leave you all with. And to use some of these skills that I've outlined. And again, you know, they are outlined in a number of my books. Again, I don't, I don't want to seem like a promoter, but they are really valuable. And then also I did a book CD called Healing Trauma, a pioneering program for restoring the wisdom of our bodies. And again, that's more of a self-help book. It was through Sounds True. But I did that around, around the time of uh, a little after I wrote Waking the Tiger. And the, all of these books really, in a way, kind of go together. And some have more, you know, are more technical and others have more, you know, practical advice and exercises that people can do to be able to restore resilience. Because that's the key. Resilience is the enemy of trauma. And trauma is the enemy of resilience. <laughs> it's kind of paradoxical. But by being able to work with the trauma, we actually become stronger, like that pot that's where the crack is filled with gold. We develop into more resilient, more compassionate, more present human beings. And I think that if there's a positive side to this, this will be the positive side that people really become more present in themselves. Because we all, you know, in our days, we have a lot of distractions, a lot of distractions. And, you know, we, we watch, we go to the movies, we go out to the, to the pubs, you know, and drink and hang out. And, you know, um, this, uh, when we're just cut off for that, you know, and, and many people, this is, it's not so funny, but it's a little bit amusing, that in uh, the US and I think in some of the other countries, uh, the divorce lawyers are making a fortune because there are more divorces than ever. But at the same time, it's opportunity for people to work with where they're stuck in their relationship and to be able to work with that, to be able to heal some of the relationships and then to be able to be there with each other and present with each other. I mean, I think that's the opportunity. You know, in in the Chinese uh, um, calligraphy, um, the calligraphy is very simple. The symbol is very s similar, at least that's what I've been told, of opportunity and of crisis and of opportunity. And so if we can see this, and I don't want to make this, you know, with rose-colored glasses, a Pollyannic thing, but if we can use this, we can use this to become more whole more connected with ourselves, more connected with others. So I think that's where I would, you know, leave 
the, you know, my suggestions. Thanks so much, Peter. A real pleasure talking to you. Thank you for your time. Okay. Bye-bye. All right. Bye-bye. Well, I hope you enjoyed listening to that interview. At the core of the health zone is one question. Where does the money come from to create it? Does the work you do make humanity better through the products you use to help you grow and become a more empowered and authentic person? That's why supporting the health zone and donor box is good for all of us. I can focus on creating an inspiring and thought-provoking show so you can become a more connected human being. It's an honest exchange, value for value. This show costs hundreds of euros per month to produce and bring to your ears. It's a free podcast and you can listen to the content for free. I invest my time and creative energy in creating it. However, I can't keep the show going without support. If you feel this podcast adds value, inspiration and motivation to your life, I invite you to support the show on donorbox.org forward slash the health zone. Think of it like going for a cup of coffee or a tea. Is this show worth buying me a coffee or a tea a month? Your kindness and generosity really helps, supports and encourages me to do even more. It also creates the possibility for someone who cannot afford to listen to it as well. Visit donorbox.org forward slash the health zone to kindly donate anything you can. Thanks ever so much for your support. Thanks for listening to another inspiring and thought-provoking show of The Health Zone. I'm Mihal Mahuna. Just to remind you, you can find us on facebook.com forward slash The Health Zone Show or you can join our Facebook group, The Health Owners. We're also on Twitter, Instagram and pain interests under The Health Zone. To gain further invaluable resources on health and well-being, go to our website, www.thehealthzoneshow.com thehealthzoneshow.com When you're on there, join The Health Zone and you'll receive a free copy of my latest ebook, 7 Ways to Boost Your Overall Well-Being. Finally, I would love to hear any feedback you may have on the show and even if there are any particular guests or topics which you're interested in, please email me on tunein at thehealthzoneshow.com Until next time, this is Hall. Thanks for listening and I wish you a very healthy, happy and authentic week.